right, so hey, if you get your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are starting our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I hope you are extremely excited about this. Um, you know Chris is. Sermon on the Mount is an amazing passage of Scripture. And I am uh, actually very excited that I have the privilege of starting it out by going through the Beatitudes. In fact, I enjoy the Beatitudes so much, I was working on notes for it, and I was writing everything out and, and started typing it and all of that, and I believe it was Friday, I think it was Friday, I messaged Pastor Matt, and I said, hey, um, how much would it throw off the schedule if you let me do this as a two-parter? Um, and I, I figured you all would enjoy that, because... I wasn't even halfway through all eight points of the Beatitudes, and I was like, all right, we're like on page five of... So this is going to be a two-part thing, and it actually works beautifully because um, well, you're going to see. It's just the way the Beatitudes are, are broken up, and, and, and what Jesus is presenting is so amazing, and then you'll see how it all flows together through the two weeks that we do this. But uh, let's just kind of start with understanding what the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that has ever been given. Um, it, it, it just really is. Uh, one, of course, because Jesus gave it. Um, two, it's because when you, Matthew's recording of it is so beautiful that he has so much detail with it and so much of it left for us to be able to pass on to us. Um, and in fact, one person has that I was kind of researching with this said that the Sermon on the Mount is the great proclamation of the kingdom of God, right? In other words, uh, another person said it's the great manifesto of the kingdom of God. It's the notice. It's the statement of belief. It is the foundation of Christianity. Everything that we can learn in scripture, we could probably take it back in some way and connect it with the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see that especially as we go through the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is clearly Jesus's declaration of his very clear intentions that he has for his people. So if I call myself a follower of Jesus and then I read the Sermon on the Mount, within those words, I am going to see a very clear intention of what Jesus expects of me and wants of me. But one of the things that's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is when we read it, at least when I read it, there's many times I can come to different passages, mainly most of them, and say, man, I'm not doing very well. And, and what ends up happening is, because we want to make ourselves feel better, what we do is, is uh, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we say to ourselves things like, and there's actually teaching on this. It says, the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus telling, what, telling us what is expected. It's just he's painting this beautiful picture of possibility. But as humans, we're too broken to ever get to that point. You know, there's no possibility, but I love what Oswald Chambers says about this. He says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it is not a set of rules and regulations. It is a picture of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his unhindered way with us. It is not some unattainable goal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has changed my nature by putting his own nature in me. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. 
See, when we hear those words that Jesus is the only one that can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount, we could say to ourselves, "Woo, I'm off the hook. But Paul addresses this. Paul says that in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul tells us that when we truly give ourselves to Jesus, that living out the truth of the Sermon on the Mount is possible. Not just possible, it's expected. That's the intention that Jesus has for us, is that we live out the truth of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just something we read and say, oh, that's nice. And he begins with the Beatitudes. Now, if you're in chapter 5 of Matthew, you know, the Beatitudes start with, you know, telling us what the blessed life looks like. The Beatitudes, that's simply what it means. It means the blessing. And Jesus is clearly telling us this is what the blessed life looks like. I don't know about you, but I desperately want to live the blessed life. The issue is, is that I fall into the trap way too often to assume that the blessed life is going to be found in the things of this world. When Jesus is clear that the blessed life comes through everything but the things of this world. And this is where the frustration comes from, for me anyways, many times. In fact, when you look at this word that says blessed, it simply means to be happy, to be joyful. It means to be a joyful, happy person, to live blessed are, and then he has his list that we'll go through. But what's interesting about this word blessed that Jesus says is he's not talking about a happiness and a joy that is found in our circumstances. In fact, he's talking about a a blessing and and a joy that actually is independent of our circumstances. It's a joy that is self-contained, meaning it's internal, not external. And, And if I got really honest with myself, everything that normally steals my joy is everything that's happening outside of me. Because I'm allowing myself to think that that is the source of my blessed life. And Jesus is telling us, he's like, no, listen, the joyful life, the life of joy that I offer you, when Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have joy, not just joy, he says, so you can have my joy. I want you to live the blessed life. And that's what Jesus is giving us here. In fact, as I was thinking about the Beatitudes, I went back to our Ephesians study. Remember the book of Ephesians, at the beginning of the book, it says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, not in the worldly realms, but in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As we begin going through the Beatitudes, let's all agree on the number one most important thing we need to understand, and it's simply this. The only blessed life, the only joy-filled life any human being will ever live is the one that is in Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to say that there can't be happiness or at least this momentary happiness, but the joy that goes beyond all circumstances, 
The joy that can stand in a, in a bedroom uh, or in, in, a, in an apartment building as there's people all around in this, in this video I was talking about singing their faith of Christ will hold me while bombs are going off. In fact, um, and, and I mention him often, but one of the, you know, I love studying older preachers, and of course I love studying uh, West, John Wesley. And one of the things that has always drawn me to him is, is an experience in his life that you might have heard me share before, but it's just, it always draws me to him because I can relate to it so much. But you have a man that is a, he's a pastor, he's a reverend. He goes over to America to try to reach people as a missionary. He fails miserably. He's coming back to England, a failure in his his ministry, and a massive storm comes. The ship's like in the middle of a hurricane, and here's Wesley holding on to the ship in fear of death, crying out because he's scared to die, and then all of a sudden he hears Christians down in the lower part of the ship singing worship songs. And he sits there and he goes, this is in his, in his diary. He sits there and he, after the ship, the, the storm's done and after it's all over, you know, he goes down and, and he, he has to find out what's different about your faith than my faith. How, how are you facing death and you can be full of joy and singing praise to God and I'm clinging to a ship hoping I don't die. So here's the thing, I relate to that because there's many times in my own Christian walk, I would be Wesley clinging to the ship, crying out, please don't let me die. And I ask myself, okay, but Jesus says, blessed, joy, happiness. This is what we're called to at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The other thing that's important as we go through these statements in the, uh, the Beatitudes is also this. These are not meant to be individual statements, meaning they, they're not standalones, right? They're not standalones, meaning you can't look at one out of the context, uh, taking you out of the context of the others. And you'll see that as we go through this. These are statements that Jesus is making that are building on one another as they flow through it because you'll see this hopefully soon. Jesus is actually presenting the clear gospel to us through the Beatitudes. And he's showing the steps of what it takes for a person to truly become a child of God. So you can't pull one out and say, I want to focus on that one, and I want to live that one. They actually, you can't move on to the second Beatitude until you deal with the first. And you can't move on to the third until you deal with one and two. And you can't move on to the fourth until you deal with one through three. They build on each other. They're not individual statements. So as we jump into the Beatitudes, I want to clarify with this. If I were asked by someone, if I could pick one passage from the Old Testament and one passage from the New Testament, and that two passages together would sum up the entire Bible. These are my two passages. The first one would be the Ten Commandments. The second one would be the Beatitudes. And I'll, hopefully you'll see this when we, as we go through this. But if, if someone asked me, just that's all you get, your elevator statement, right? You have your elevator statement. You got like two minutes to try to go through the entirety of the Bible and try to explain the gospel and who Jesus is and why all this matters. I would pick the, old, I would pick the Ten Commandments and I would pick the Beatitudes. 
So let's just look at this for a second, right? We all know the Ten Commandments. Just as a reminder, there you go. Ten Commandments. Philip, it's a little smaller because I had to get it all on one slide. He gives me crap all the time that I have small print. And I thought about you as I was making it. It's all right. Your wife can tell you what it says. <laughs> um, so here's Ten Commandments. We know these, right? You shall have no gods before me. Don't make yourself idols. You know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. I don't have to read. We know the Ten Commandments. This is why I would pick the Ten Commandments to sum up the Old Testament. Because if you were here for any of our Judges series, the one thing you hopefully you learn through the Judges series is humanity can't get it right. Right? And that, that's what we learned through the Judges series. No matter what, we always mess it up. When we're left to ourselves, we can never do it right. That's kind of, here's the thing. The Old Testament is, a, don't, I love the Old Testament. There's so much good stuff in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is, I mean, it, it, that's all you kind of keep reading is just this, you did it bad. You did it bad. You did it bad. You're going to get judged. <laughs> in fact, one of the things about the Old Testament that's interesting, does anybody know what the, the last word of the Old Testament is. Like if you were in the last book, the very last word of the Old Testament, does anybody know what it is? Oh, come on. Everybody's looking. I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Can't look it up. Mass is like, of course I know. (laughs) The last word in in the Old Testament is curse. And this is how the Old Testament ends. It's kind of talk, a curse. I mean, the Old Testament gives us very plain who God is and explains so much to us, but it shows us something very interesting, and, and it shows us very, something very clear and very truthful that we all have to understand this morning. We are broken, messy, sinful, wicked people before a holy God. That's what the Ten Commandments tell me. See, and right now it's just like, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be told that. But that's a beautiful thing because that's where the Beatitudes start, right? The Beatitudes start by telling us something that is extremely important for us to understand. It is that is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, I can't be poor in spirit until I first accept the fact that I'm a lawbreaker. I can't be poor in spirit until I first accept that I have broken every single one of those commandments. And Jesus, you know, anybody that's never read the Sermon on the Mount, somebody, I mean, if you've never read it, somebody might be saying, nope, time out, never committed adultery, never killed anybody. That's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because Jesus raises the bar. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, listen, if you ever lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've ever hated somebody, you've committed, you've committed murder in your heart. I have broken every single one of those commandments. I am a lawbreaker before a holy God, and all I deserve is a curse. This is why Paul says something very important to us in Romans. He says, obviously... The law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God 
For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Do you know the first step to the blessed life, Jesus tells us, is actually to accept and realize that you are sinful before a holy God? That Jesus is telling us, if you accept your condition, if you realize your condition, this is the start of the blessed life. It's a source of joy to actually acknowledge I am a lawbreaker. And the cops are coming. <laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, Amy and I are getting to the point um, with, with raising our kids that uh, Piper, um, our youngest, uh, <laughs> She is, I mean, I get told this at least once a day by Amy, that she is totally your child, right? Um, Because she likes to argue and debate. She loves, I mean, she loves it. Even when she is blatantly just wrong, she will double down, right? I mean, it is hilarious. To the point that Amy, when I get frustrated, she would like, stop it. I, I mean, you do, I mean, this is you. So anyways, I say that because when I think about this, because all of us here might be like, yeah, I'm, I'm a, you know, I get it. I've sinned. I've, I'm, whatever. Um, I think of Piper because Piper, she has this really great way of acknowledging it and then giving you her excuse. Right? Like, she'll acknowledge it. Yeah, I did that. But you said, like, she, she's great at this, right? She's, she's amazing at it. Here's the thing. Many people never move past the first beatitude because we spend our lives not being poor in spirit, but instead trying to make excuses and reasons for why we broke the law. Right? I'm going to debate. I'm going to find a way to kind of make it less than it really is. I'm going to say, but you don't know my history or you don't know my past or you don't know what I had to go through or or, or you don't know what I was thinking at the time or or you don't know the situation. And God looks at all of us and Jesus says very clearly, I know all of it. You are still guilty of breaking my law. And Jesus tells us that the first part of the blessed life is simply blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's just talk for a moment of what this means. Simply this, poor in spirit means that you and I are morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. We have nothing to give to, to, to do anything about our condition before God. We stand guilty before God. And I have nothing to offer. There is nothing that I can do to get out of the guilt that I have before a holy God that I have broken His law and I have broken His commandments and I stand wicked before Him. Jesus says, blessed are the ones that accept this. Blessed are the ones that accept that they are sinful and rebellious before God. 
The blessed life begins first on how we even approach God in the first place. On whether or not we are willing to be open and honest about our condition before Him. I had a pastor ask once, he was talking about how we talk about our, our salvation. We talk about, um, you know, our, uh, um, what Jesus has done for us and all that. And he says, you know, we, we talk a lot about how we're, we're good and saved. But he asked the question, he says, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, were you ever really good and lost? And what he meant by that was he was basically like, you know, uh, a lot of people, especially, and, and this isn't true of everyone, but I know it's true of me. When you grow up in the church, you, you kind of grow up with this, at least I did, you grow up with this mentality of you're not as bad as you think you are. Because I grew up in church, right? I, I grew up, you know, I was of course I'm a Christian. You know, you kind of grow up with this. And, and it took a long time before I, I really stood before God and said, man, I am just absolutely wicked before you. And, and I didn't want to accept my condition. Instead, I would say things like this. Well, yeah, I do bad things, but man, God, look at all the good stuff I do. I go to church every Sunday. I go to youth group. Shoot, I've taught Sunday school even before I was out of high school. They had me teaching high school Sunday school. So it's like... God, I can debate with pastors. I can argue with the adults on Scripture. Yeah, I do bad stuff, but I mean, I'm not, come on. I'm not that bad. The question is, has any of us ever really truly ask yourself the question, have you ever seen how wicked you were before God? How much you didn't deserve to be in His presence? So we don't want to talk that way, but Jesus says that's the beginning of the blessed life. Is that I'm poor in spirit. Because then there's the promise. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts the Beatitudes by saying this is the requirement to enter into the kingdom of God. A person must first accept their condition apart from God. Before I can enter into the kingdom, I have to accept my condition apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, any of us that harbor illusions of our own spiritual resources or our own self-righteousness or our own good works or any of our own goodness, we will never receive from God the salvation that is needed to enter into his kingdom because we're basing it on us and not on him. <clears throat> See, when I think about the poor in spirit, it's this amazing thought that the poor in spirit are actually the people, the ones that accept their condition, are the ones that God takes out of the garbage heap. And he sets them in his kingdom, not as servants to serve him, but as children to love him. But it first has to start by a person that accepts their condition. That's one of the things I love so much about when uh, this, this church before the merger, you guys were going through the, um, the prodigal son I don't remember what the series name, but we were talking about it. Um, and I remember in scripture, I, I just, it just kind of, there's this part where the, the prodigal son is, is in, the, in the, the hog trough, right? He's like, he's with the pigs and he's longing for uh, something to eat and, and it just is, he's starving and he wants to eat the slop and he's, this is filthy and nasty, he's bankrupt. And the Bible says when he came to his senses, 
that coming to his senses was he accepted his condition. And that was what started his journey back to his father. That's what Jesus is saying here. Blessed is the person that accepts their condition. Now here's the thing. We can't move on to the rest of the Beatitudes until you first accept your condition before God. Because the next one is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. See, this is a go-to passage when we go through difficulty in life. When someone is suffering and hurting and mourning, of course, this is a wonderful promise. But the problem is, this is not just talking about worldly experiences. There is something deeper here that Jesus is saying. He says, blessed are you that are spiritually poor and accept your condition. And because of that, blessed are you when you mourn because of it. Blessed are you that mourn over your condition. See, there's many reasons in life to mourn, but this blessing only flows from the realization of our need for Jesus. This word mourn that Jesus is using, it's a deep grief before God. It's more than just having a sorrow over the punishment, right? Now, now track with me, because this is something that I've been wrestling with this week as I've been thinking about this. Um, I grew up in a time when I remember, you know, the hellfire and brimstone sermons. You guys remember, anybody ever go through the, the good old hellfire, you know, like, you're all going to hell. It sucks, but you're going, you know, and, and the preacher's pounding the pulpit, you're all going to burn. You know, Matt used it, but I've heard it too, you know, the you know, turn or burn mentality. And you get a lot of people that will, you know, accept Christ in those moments. And I'm not denying the sincerity of their salvation. So I'm not trying to say they're not saved when I say this. But the problem is, many times people choose Jesus not because they love him, but because they just don't want to go to hell. Right? Makes sense. I don't want to go to hell. So if you give me the options... Believe in Jesus or go to hell? Okay, I'll believe in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. Because I don't want to go to hell. What Jesus is saying here in this morning is this isn't just sorrow because you're afraid of the punishment. But it's having a sorrow and mourning over the fact that you have broken the heart of God. It's interesting, I kind of debated whether I wanted to share this story, uh, but I won't go into great detail, and probably later she'll ask me about it, but um, I remember there was this moment, I'm sure I've like hurt my mother a lot in my life, um, and, and, but there is one moment I can't get out of my head whenever I think about this, um, and, I, and like I said, I'm not going to go into detail, but, but I remember very clearly I did something, and my, my dad came and got me, he's like, you're going to go down, and you're going to apologize right now. It's like, oh, fine, right? Like, I'll apologize because I'm going to get past this and just move on, right? Let's, whatever. I went down, and I remember this was in our old house, and she was sitting in the dining room, and when I walked up to her, she was crying because of what I did, and I remember looking at her face, and that was a moment of, oh, my gosh, look at the pain that I caused her. And it changed kind of my thinking in that moment of like, man, David, you suck to cause that kind of pain in someone that cares for you. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. He's like, it's not, oh, I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to be sorrowed. Jesus is like, this is a morning where you realize that your sin has broken the heart of God. But he's saying, blessed is the person that allows themselves to mourn over their sin. So so we live in a world, I'm guilty of this, right? We live in a world where when we see someone in mourning, we feel like the best thing that we can do is try to make them feel better. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because we don't want to see anybody hurting or sad. But Jesus is telling us there's purpose and value in the morning. The sorrow that comes over our sin, to be broken by our sin, to look at the face of God and say, I have sinned against you and done evil in your sight. God, I have broken your heart. I can honestly tell you there are as many sins in my life that I have confessed to God, not because I was sorrowful, I had sorrow because of them, not because I was in mourning, but because I was like, I don't want to go to hell. And can I tell you what normally happened whenever I confessed sins, not because I was broken because of them, but because I just didn't want to be punished? I do that sin again. And then I do that sin again. And then I do that sin again. And then guess what? I do it again. Because I wasn't broken over it. And Jesus says there's blessing, there's joy in letting the sorrow of our sin have a moment to put us in a right position before God. Depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am unworthy to be in your presence. See, Jesus is talking about us mourning over our sin and the effects of our sin, but not just in us, but we should be mourning over our sins, the sins of others, the sins in our world. But it really breaks my heart. Personally, it does when I see sin all around me and I will literally find myself saying, God, why doesn't this make me mourn more than it does? These are questions I've been asking myself this week. Here is the answer that came. I felt very convicted with this. He said, David, when you think about your mourning, when you think about sorrow, usually you look at it through the lens of how it affects you. But what if you started looking at your sin and mourning over it through the lens of what I had to go through to deal with it? Meaning, the sin that I have in my heart and in my life, what have I started saying to myself, David, that is the very thing that Jesus went to the cross for. And the pain that he suffered is the sin that you are harboring and seeking and longing for. David, the stuff that you want to watch for entertainment and the sin that's in front of you in entertainment, this is the very things that Jesus died for, but yet you seek it to entertain you. What if my mourning allowed me to start living a life where I said to Jesus, I don't ever want to seek anything 
that will cause you pain again. Because I never want to look at your face knowing that I broke your heart. There was a song back when I was uh, younger that I used to sing in church. It was called Feel the Nails. And now here's the thing. I'm not going to say this is biblical, but it's stuck with me ever since. When I say biblical, don't hang your you know, theology on it. But one of the lines of the song was this, and I'll never forget it. Do you still feel the nails every time I fail? Do you hear the crowd cry crucify again? Am I causing you pain? Right, this, this idea of the song of, Lord, I know you're not dying for me again, but when you see me chasing after my sin, does it remind, do you feel it? Right? Am I causing you pain because you chose to take the punishment for that? Lord, I don't want to cause you pain. But then there's the promise, right? Each one of the Beatitudes has this statement, then a promise. The promise is you will be comforted. Can can I tell you that I think many of us don't experience the comfort that Jesus has for us because we don't allow ourselves to sit inside of the morning long enough? One of the things that I'm guilty of many times when it comes to my sin is because I don't want to face it, I just choose to ignore it. So you just either stay busy or do something else or just try to numb yourself. I've done that a lot in my life, right? Like, I don't want to face this, Lord, so I'm just going to, let's, let's avoid it. I don't like silence. That's one of the things that uh, is interesting. My wife gives me a hard time all, all the time. She's like, do you really have to have the TV on all the time? Even if I'm not watching it, it's on. And one of the reasons that is, is because I don't like silence, because silence is usually when God likes to speak. And sometimes when I don't want to hear God speak, if I keep enough noise, I can distract myself from not having to listen to what God has to say. That's one of the ways I do it. Other people do it by, I'm just going to stay busy. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to slow down long enough to actually have to deal with any of this stuff. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, if you want the blessed life, you got to feel the sorrow. You got to go through the mourning. Because without it, there is no comfort. We just want to jump to the comfort. Lord, make me feel better. Even like right now, I, I guarantee you there's somebody in this room right now, I guarantee you, it's like, I did not come to church for not a happy sermon. See? We get up on Sunday morning and we say, I want to go to church because I want you to make me feel better. Jesus is saying sometimes the way to feel better and to be comforted is you first have to go through some sorrow. You have to mourn. But too often we want to jump over the mourning. Now this is where, like I said, this is the gospel, right? You're, realize your condition. Mourn over your sin. And then Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. This is where it really starts getting good. Because godly sorrow, right? Mourning over my sin, that sorrow that leads to repentance, leads me to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. There are many different ways you can see this word, but one of the things that's so important about the word that Jesus uses here is meekness is an attitude or quality of heart 
where a person is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will and the desire of someone else. The third beatitude is when a person understands their condition before God and their sinfulness before God, when a person mourns over their sin, it will lead them to repent and become meek before Almighty God and submit to the will and the desire of Jesus with their life. This is the third beatitude when we give ourselves to God. Meekness is to live entirely dependent on God. One of the analogies I like with this is meekness is also strength under control. So think about it this way. Take a wild horse, a wild stallion that is powerful and, and, and has this ability to, to do whatever it wants, and then it comes under the submission of being broke. See, meekness is when I choose to be broke by God. Submission is when, and meekness is when I choose to say, God, I'm going to take your yoke upon me. And I'm not going to be this wild person that does whatever I want, but I'm going to come under submission to you. See, the thing is, is many times we fall into the trap of thinking this statement is, is how we deal with one another, right? Be meek to one another. But here's the thing. None of us can be meek towards another person until we first are meek before God. So the blessing of this is Jesus saying the blessed life is a person that fully submits to God, to his will and to his word. This is the moment of repentance. This is where I say my life is no longer my own, but I will give it all to you, Jesus. I submit completely to you. No person can submit to Jesus until they first accept their condition and they mourn over their sin. Once we do that, We are excited to submit to Jesus. So why is this important just for a moment? It's simply this, is because many people feel that they are Christians. And again, I'm not saying that they're not. So that's not my place. But think about this for a moment, because I think about this with my life. I know that there were many times in my life that I surrendered to God, but I surrendered with defiance. Here's what I mean by that. I looked at all my options and said, okay, I'm just going to surrender because I have to, not because I want to, because I don't want to go to hell. So I'll surrender to you, but I'm going to still be in defiance. It's no different if you think about what's happening in Ukraine. You know, if, if at any point the people in Ukraine said, we're going to surrender to you because right now that's our only and best option. But here's the deal. We're still going to be in defiance of you. See, there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, that that's technically where our faith is. I'll submit because I don't want the punishment, but I'm still going to be defiant. I'm not doing it because I love you. I'm not doing it because I have sorrow over my sin. In fact, I like my sin. I want my sin. I will protect my sin. I will defend my sin. My sin is mine. My life is mine, but I just want the ticket to get out of the punishment. But Jesus says, no, the blessed life is a person that is meek and submits completely to God. Not out of defiance, but out of love. I want to. 
And here's the promise. The meek shall inherit the earth. Can I tell you something right now? I don't want this earth. Jesus ain't talking about this earth. I don't want this. I mean, if, if Jesus came like, here, you can have this earth, um, it's kind of like when you get a car and it's like the beat up, nasty thing. I don't want that. Jesus ain't talking about this earth. I'm not meant to inherit this earth. And I don't want it anyways because Jesus says many times in scriptures, God tells us he's going to make a new one anyways. Isn't that kind of suck? Hey, here's your earth to inherit. By the way, I'm going to make a new one, so enjoy it while you got it. He's not talking about this earth. He's talking about the next. And the only people that are going to inherit the next are the ones that surrender and submit to him. This is why this is about salvation. This isn't just about live meek around each other because you'll inherit the earth, which means you're going to enjoy the things of this earth. He's saying, no, surrender to me and you're going to be with me in the next earth. And that's your inheritance. And your inheritance is given because you're a child of mine. This is one of the greatest promises of the Beatitudes. Is Jesus, remember, I go back to the beginning. Ten Commandments, show me that I'm a lawbreaker. Jesus says, the blessed life is when I accept that I broke the law. And when I am mourning over the fact that I broke God's heart because I broke the law. And Jesus is now saying, blessed life is when you submit to me and you become my child. And you will inherit everything I have for you. This is the beginning of the blessed life. Jesus is telling us very clearly the blessed life is not found in anything of this earth, anything of this world. It's found not in money, toys, happiness, and the circumstances around us. Joy and the blessed life is not found in your family, your kids, your job, your experiences, your vacations, any of those things. None of that will give you the blessed life. Jesus is saying the blessed life is the person that is broken by their sin and submits to me and becomes my child. And when they do, they get everything everything. And you get it for all eternity. So here's the thing. Next week, we're going to go through the rest of the Beatitudes, and we're going to look at what happens in our lives after we give ourselves to Jesus. We're going to look at how he changes us and how he transforms us, and we become people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. We become peacemakers. We become pure of heart. We become all of these things because of the work that he does in the first three. But I want us to end with this truth. None of that matters if you first don't go through Beatitudes 1, 2, and 3. I can't stand upon the blessings of the rest of it until I first come and get right with Jesus. It's impossible. So here's what, how we're going to end this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We've got a few minutes left. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. Uh, we don't normally end with a song anymore, but we're going we're gonna to spend some time, and we're just going to sing Living Hope again. But here's what I'm going to ask as we do this song. If you are here this morning and you have never accepted your condition before God and God is telling you right now, this is your condition, I encourage you to do something about it. 
If this morning you have never been broken by your sin, and in fact, Christians, don't just sit there and say it to yourself, well, this is about salvation. If you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, but you are still harboring sin in your life and you are not broken over it, do something about it. And that can simply start by just coming to God and saying, God, break me. Break me of this. Lord, comfort me. I, I want to be free of this. And, and if you're here this morning, if you've never submitted yourself really to God, maybe you submitted in defiance like I was talking about. Again, I know I did that for many years of my life. Lord, yes, I accept you, but not because I want you. I just don't want what's the alternative. Man, if, if that's your faith, if that's what your faith is based on, realize you are never going to experience the joy that Jesus has for you. And if you need to accept his salvation by submitting to him and saying, Lord, it's all yours because you love me. Before we sing the song, I want to give you one last image of what Jesus did for you. And hopefully it just prompts his spirit to just pull to think about this and why you should love him so much. Imagine you're standing in front of the Hoover Dam. Okay? And all of a sudden a crack shows up in the dam. And before you know it, it busts open and all the water behind it just starts raging towards you. And you're standing there waiting to be destroyed by this massive wall of water. And then all of a sudden, before it hits you, a huge hole enters in the ground and all of the water flows into the hole and not a single drop touches you. Here's why I want you to think about this. Our condition without Jesus is the wrath of God is like that wall of water coming at you. And the wrath of God is going to destroy you because of your condition and because of your sin and because of the laws that you have broken. And Jesus on Calvary became the hole that took the brunt of all of that wrath. Jesus stood before you on the cross to take the brunt of all of that wrath so that not a single drop will touch you. This is what Jesus did for us. This is why when we submit to him, we submit not because we have to. We submit because we want to. Because he loved us so much that he stood in the way and took the entirety of God's wrath so that you could inherit and be a child. And I don't know where you're at with God this morning, but as we sing this song, do whatever you need. I mean, if you front, there, wherever. But don't leave if God's saying, hey, let's just, let's spend some time together. That's my encouragement. Lord God, as we just spend this time before you, you do whatever work that you want to do, Father. Spirit, you speak however you want to speak. You move however you want to move. Let us just be willing to respond to whatever it is. We love you. Amen.